It's the first time I had seen that video, and it really illustrates uh, in many ways what we're going to study this morning. Um, So much of the battle that we have in life, even as believers, is the battle between what we feel and what we know. And sometimes we don't feel it, do we? We don't feel our connection to the Lord, and we don't feel like walking with the Lord, and we don't feel like doing the things that the Bible tells us to do. And yet we know what's right, and we know the Lord, and we know He's good, and we know that what He wants for us and what He asks for us is what is best. And that struggle, that that dilemma that we have sometimes, I don't know if you feel it, I feel it, I felt it a lot this week. That That dilemma and that struggle is kind of at the heart of our study this morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn back to 1 Peter 1, because... This morning we're going to talk about a a subject that we all struggle with and something that really is a challenge. We kind of alluded to it a little bit a few weeks ago. Um, But in trying to understand this text, the Lord is really um, wants to reveal a lot of things to us and a lot of things that are going to to challenge us and confront us. And at the same time, I think will greatly encourage us. The the question that I thought of as, as I came into this study and uh, I always try to figure out how do you how do you open how do you start the study. But the question that that came to my heart as I was studying was if we were to think about the one thing that prevents us from living a holy life, and the one thing that would would prevent us from having an effective personal ministry that impacts people for Christ, what would it be? Now. Think through this because this is important and, and I think we need to come to a great understanding of what exactly uh, tends to hinder us. What, what, would, what would hinder our spiritual maturation? What would damage our witness? What would cut into our ability to speak to people and to minister to people and to talk and evidence a transformed life in Christ? What, what would that be? Now, there are many things in our walk that that can prevent maturity. There are many things that can that can hurt us. But I don't believe there's anything that has a more detrimental effect to us living a holy life and us having an effective ministry and us having a powerful witness and, and for people to be able to look at us and say, there's something different, there's something going on, there's something that is unique about their life as I look at all the other lives that are around me. There's something about them that's different. If there's one thing that's going to hinder that, it's living for ourselves. Living for ourselves is so, it's it's such a a contrary concept to what the Lord has created for us and what he's called us to do that it can literally infect every aspect of our life. It's a constant spiritual temptation. The enemy's total goal of his life is, until he burns in the lake of fire forever, is for you and I, even as believers, he's already got the world convinced of this, so now he wants to try to convince believers of this. He wants to convince us that we should be self-focused. In our walk, in our faith, in our ministry, in our lives, in our relationships, he wants us to think about ourselves all the time. And if he can do that, it will render our walk essentially ineffective, and it will damage our spiritual maturation. 
not to mention all the residual effects that it will have on other aspects of our life. In fact, it could be a case could be made that that if we're living for ourselves, we can't truly be living for the Lord. Because over and over again, the Lord tells us how to deal with self. He says, deny self and put off your old self and don't be controlled by self and to put on a renewed mind and to put on the new man. So, so if we're preoccupied with ourselves and we're letting it drive our lives, not only does it put us in conflict and opposition to the Lord, but it does a tremendous amount of destruction in our lives. Now, last week we began a series that we're calling Becoming, and it's based on this book, here, there, First Peter, this book written by Peter, and we established kind of as an overarching goal that the goal of our studies is, is to be transformed by the power of God like Peter was, and to become deeply mature spiritually so we can be used by the Lord. And we, and we kind of take comfort and solace that Peter's the one that wrote this because we know how he was. We know he was impulsive and stubborn. He had a lot of great qualities, but he also had a lot of qualities that, that kind of bit him in the foot. And we know how often he, quote-unquote, failed the Lord or, or caused some kind of uh, problem where the Lord had to kind of say, Peter, cut it out, or Peter, stop that, or Peter, stop talking, or Peter, you're going to deny me three times, or Peter, do you really love me? I mean, Peter's kind of always this, this focal point of the Lord's attention, whereas the others are just kind of, in a sense, we kind of see them along for the walk, right? But, but Peter's kind of always at the forefront of what's going on. And yet, despite all his failures and despite all his inconsistencies and all his personal uh, qualities that you kind of cringe and go, ooh, he probably shouldn't have said that right then. Despite all of that, the Lord used him greatly. In fact, the transformation that Peter shows and the powerful person and minister that he becomes prove, here's our comfort this morning, that the Lord can use and will use anyone who is submitted to him. There is no difference, and this is what I love about Peter, there is no difference between Peter and me. There's no difference between Peter and you. You say, well, he walked with the Lord for three years. Doesn't matter. We live in the presence of the Lord. So there's no difference. Peter is just like us. The Bible says in James, Elijah was just like us. They're no different. They're not superhuman. They're not super disciples. They're not people that had an extra advantage. They are people just like you and me. That's what the Holy Spirit constantly tries to impress upon our hearts as we study the word of God. Because God wants to tell us the next Peter could be in this room. The next person that could transform this world. You say, Paul, I'm just trying to get through the week and pay my bills. I get that. But you know what? The next Peter could be in this room. God can use anybody in the exact same way that he used this man. And we look at the flaws and we look at the problems and we look at the character inconsistencies and we say, well, okay, that kind of encourages me because here's a guy who's just like me. I see a lot of myself in Peter. And yet God is calling us to something so much more significant that he's waiting and watching and looking at us and saying, when's your time going to be? Because I'm ready to work through you. I'm ready to work through this body. I'm ready to do something significant. Are you ready? Let's see what the text says, because it's reinforced here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 10. Let me actually start in verse 8 for some context, kind of take us out of the end of last week. 
He talks in verse 7 about the proof of our faith. He says, though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, here's our text for today. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, because of all this, that's the transitional word, because of all this, in light of this, as a conclusion to this, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you will be holy, for I am holy. Now, the Spirit gives us a very important insight in the first section of this passage, and I had so much fun studying it because there's so much to learn from it. And I never thought of this before in the way that it struck me this week, because he's saying right here that the prophets that were told long ago, we're talking Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, those types of prophets, way back thousands of years ago, They were told long before Christ came that he would come. And they gave that message, they were given that message, not for themselves, not just for their ministry then, not even for the people at that time, most of whom didn't want to listen to it at all. Peter writes that the prophecies were given at that time for these people. Now remember, Peter is writing to people who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, throughout Cappadocia and Bithynia and, and, and places like that, kind of, kind of spread out in the northern part of Turkey and Greece, if you look at a modern-day map, up in the, in the northern part of the Mediterranean region. So Peter's writing to them. They're believers who are scattered. They don't have a, a church. They don't have a body like they did in Colossae or Philippi or Ephesus. The, these are just... People that are spread out, they're going to trade the letter. And Peter says to them, when the prophets prophesied, when they spoke about Christ's coming, it was hundreds of years before he ever came. And when they prophesied that, they didn't prophesy for those people, and they didn't even prophesy to prove that they knew Christ was coming. They prophesied for you. And they prophesied for us. He says, they're the ones, and you're the ones, who haven't seen Christ personally. And the Bible says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Hebrews says that's the essence of faith, to be able to believe in something without holding it tangibly in your hand and say, this is a Bible. He he says, the greatest faith, Jesus said this himself, the greatest faith is those who have not seen and yet still believe. And he calls us blessed for that. Peter says, you that I'm writing to, look at the text, you that I'm writing to, you you haven't seen Christ, but you've persevered through trials and opposition and persecution. And I want you to know the incredible mercy of God 
because God wasn't just concerned about then. He is concerned about now. He knew ahead what was going to happen and he wants to encourage you and help you. And we know that the Lord lives in the eternal now. He is not restricted by time. He doesn't look and say, oh, it's 17 minutes till 10 in Racine, Wisconsin, Central Daylight Time on July 7th, 2013. He knows the time, but the time doesn't restrict him. He sees everything from eternity to eternity. My mind shuts off after a while, and I'm like, I can't go that far. But God is not restricted. Everything to him happens now. That means that he already knows what you and I will face in the days ahead. And he already knows what we need and how to supply it. And he's already there. He is not phased by circumstances. He is not concerned by what might happen tomorrow. He is not stressed out. He's not, oh, I don't, I'm anxious. And he doesn't deal with any of that. But we do. We tend to live in the moment, don't we? And we tend to fear the future. And we tend to be anxious about what's going to happen next. Think about how much time you and I spent this week worrying about the future. Even a day or two ahead. What's going to happen this week? And, and, and who am I going to be with? And, 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 and how, how, what, what, what's going to happen? And, and, and I, wonder, I wonder if everything's going to go okay. And we struggle with uncertainty and we worry about a conversation and we try to figure out what's right and how am I going to make decisions and what happens if, and I don't know, Egypt's kind of crazy and the world's kind of messed up and the economy's going down and mortgages are going up and how am I going to pay my bills and what's my health going to be like and what's that weird pain that I have when I woke up this morning and, and, and how am I going to pay for college and Right? Anybody relate to this besides me? I'm not just talking to myself, right? Every degree of our lives is thinking about the future in some way and always with some degree of uncertainty. But here's the great fact. The Lord's already there. He's already there. His presence has already secured the beachhead of our future. He's already got it. He knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly how to provide. He has fresh mercy already waiting for Monday morning. And he says to us, be anxious for nothing. Now, to me, that's always been a verse that has impacted me for the last, let's see, 1987, for the last 26 years, that verse has impacted me. And I think it's very underrated. I think that spiritual principle of be anxious for nothing is far more important than we would ever think because it applies to the exercise of our faith. See, fear is rooted, excuse me, let me rephrase that. Faith is limited by three things. Your faith this week, my faith this week, will be hindered, it will be blocked, the attempt will be made for our faith to be stifled by three things. First, a lack of understanding. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to do it. I don't know what lies ahead. I don't quite get it. I'm not wise enough. That, that lack of understanding 
creates a, a hindrance to faith. The second thing is a desire for control. Well, because I don't understand, therefore I have to try to create circumstances in my life that will marginalize the anxiety and marginalize the problem and allow me to, to be able to kind of manipulate the situation, and sometimes it's very subtle, to, to, to create a situation that is safe and, and that allows me to have an influence. That stifles faith. The third thing is fear. Out of a lack of understanding, and when we realize we're not really in control, then we get fear. Every one of those things is rooted in self, and they push against our faith, which is why the Lord says to us in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And what's the next part of the phrase? Lean not on your own what? Understanding. Why? Because we don't have any understanding. Then he says, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll do what? Direct your paths. So if I'm clueless, and you can say that I am, it's okay, I'll give you permission. If I'm clueless, if I don't have understanding, if I don't have wisdom, if I'm not seeking the Lord and asking him for wisdom, God says, listen, in all your ways, acknowledge me, trust me, put your confidence in me, and when you do that with all your heart and quit thinking that you know the way to go, I will lead you and I will direct your paths. Then he says that whole thing about, about control, yeah, that doesn't work for you. So here's what I want you to do. Not just bring it down a notch. Not just try to, try to do better. He says, no, let's be radical. Let's, let's do massive, radical, invasive surgery on your soul. I want you to deny yourself daily. Uh, what? No, I want you to die to self. When you're trying to control it and we're trying, you're trying to, 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 to make everything better because you think you have understanding. No, I want you to get out of that mindset and I want you to deny yourself so that you will follow me because I will show you what control is. I will lead you in the right way. And, and, and if that really scares you to death, 901 times in the Bible he says, don't fear. Don't be scared of that. Be anxious for nothing. And if, and if you don't know how to do that, here's how. In everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And I'll supply all your needs. Now, now, we hear those verses and we know those verses and we can say, wow, that sounds really nice. You tied it up in a nice little package and that sounds great, but you don't know what I'm facing. That, that's where self comes crashing back in and says, no, that doesn't work. But here's the thing. Those are not suggestions. That's not a request from the Lord. I'd like you to try this for a while, Paul, and see if that works. He says, this is a command, and the confidence that you have is born from this truth. I am looking ahead of you. Now, God is not ahead because there's no ahead with God, but that's the only way we can understand it from our limited perspective. The prophets, when they prophesied, we're not thinking about Gentile believers seven or 800 years ahead. They had their own frustrations. Nobody was listening to them. Their heart for the people was broken because the people didn't listen. But the Lord said to them, hey, this is not your only audience. 
And I know the Israelites are hard-hearted, and I know they're stubborn, and I know they don't want to listen to you, and I'm about to divide them, and after I divide them, you're going to keep prophesying, and you're going to send letters to them, and you're going to write to them and call them back to the Lord, and they're going to snub their nose at me. Listen, prophets, this is not just about you. There are going to be people later on who trust and love the Lord centuries later. And they're going to be in strange places you've never heard of, like Cappadocia and Bithynia. And they're going to be strengthened by this news from heaven. They would be disheartened. They would be devastated if it wasn't for this word from the Lord. But I want to tell you, they're going to be validated in their faith by your words hundreds of years before. And by the way, there are also going to be people in Racine, Wisconsin in 2013. And there are going to be people in Seattle and Wichita and San Jose and Shanghai and Chongqing and Taipei City and Hanoi. Those are all people that are listening to us, that are studying the word of God with us. And God says, they're going to be encouraged, Jeremiah, by your words. Isn't that an incredible thought? Listen, Jeremiah, I know you're the weeping prophet. I know you're torn apart. I know you have no congregation. You stand up to talk about the word of the Lord and nobody listens. Talk about depressing as a preacher. Imagine if I got up here this morning and the place was empty. Okay, let's open our Bibles. Oh, there's nobody. I'll open my Bible. How's that? He says, the message is not for them. The message is for other people. And you don't know their names, but I do. And I'm out ahead of you. Look at verse 12. It says this was revealed to them during their ministry. Here's, we're coming to the point, the application to us. He says, you're not serving yourselves. You're serving others far into the future. What a humbling revelation that must have been ministering during a very spiritually dry time, but the Spirit spurs them on and He says, oh, others are going to benefit from this. And the benefit's not just for them, but prophets, it's also to direct your thoughts and your ministry away from yourselves and toward others. How discouraging would it have been even for the great prophets of God to be giving the word and to see a complete lack of response. How much would that diminish your fire? How much would it cause you even, and here's the subtlety of pride, to kind of get self-righteous and go, well, I'm serving the Lord. Listen, Elijah did that, right? Got up in the cave and said, oh, I'm serving the Lord. Nobody cares. God, kill me. God said, be quiet. There are hundreds of people that have never bowed to Baal. You go find them. Quit thinking about yourself. See, it would have been easy for the prophets to say, well, this is awful. I don't like this at all. Why couldn't I live in a time when people wanted to listen? In the same way, it's easy for us to get discouraged. Well, the world is just going crazy and people won't listen and the gospel's being diminished and we're, we're seeing people be beat up at rallies and we're seeing that we're seeing the Supreme Court make weird decisions and everything's just going off the rails more and more quickly every day and, and I don't want to do it anymore and I'm serving the Lord and I'm staying. Listen, that's exactly what the prophets faced. 
And God says, you've got to get your mind off yourself and realize that others need this. How many times have I as a minister gotten discouraged? Why isn't there growth? Why aren't people listening? I'm not talking about this congregation. I'm talking about many other times. Just, just what, what, what's going on? Why are people introspective? And it's easy to kind of get self-righteous about that. And it's easy to get discouraged and say, I don't feel like doing this anymore. Why can't people get their act together? And then I realize the Lord's saying to me, why don't you get your act together? Why don't you quit feeling sorry for yourself? Because I've called you to do two things. Love me and love others. There are no provisions on that. Not when it's convenient. Not when it's easy. Not when people notice us. Not when people appreciate what we're doing. Not when the world comes to great revival because of it. He just says, you love me and you love others. That's all there is to it. Serve me. Fulfill your calling. Now, what does this teach us? Let's, let's get into the heart of this and then we're going to pray. This teaches us a very important spiritual principle that applies to every single aspect of our lives. Here's the principle. The Lord wants us to live outside of ourselves. The Lord wants us to live outside of ourselves. By that, I mean that we have to be people who not only willingly and joyfully sacrifice our will to the Lord, but we need to be people who live selflessly to love and serve others. What a great evidence of that yesterday. As many of you helped move the commodores in. Not a word of complaint. Just laboring in the heat. Sweating. Go to this room. Go to this room. Nobody kind of looking and rolling their eyes. I mean, that's, that's what the body does. I was proud of the church yesterday for doing that. But that has to be constant. That's not just on a Saturday when somebody needs to be moved. That's in here this morning. That's as we minister together. That's as we pray together. That's as we eat dinner together. That's as we relate to each other. It should be every single moment of every single day. That's the attitude we have toward each other. And the enemy is going to fight that. And culture is going to discourage it. We live in a culture that so highly values self. And we face an enemy that so desperately wants us to be as obsessed with ourselves as he is with himself. And then we fight against an old nature that's constantly warring against our new nature. But here's what really hit me this week, and it revealed itself in so many ways. How many of our problems are created because we're overly preoccupied with ourselves? I mean, really think about it. How much of your problems this week, how many sins, how many conflicts were created because we live for ourselves? And then it struck me, if, if we literally lived for the Lord and we live for others more than we live for ourselves and we lived holy lives, I mean, not just good, we lived holy lives and we didn't live for ourselves, what kind of conflicts will we have? What would our biggest problem be? Being seen as weak? Having people take advantage of us? Not being respected. Maybe being criticized. Well, Jesus actually spoke to this perception. And I want you to listen very carefully to the specifics of what he said and what we receive as a result. If we're worried in living a holy life and living for him and for others about people taking advantage of us and being seen as weak 
and, and we're not going to get the attention that we want. Listen to what Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the people who show mercy, for they'll receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. Blessed are the people that make peace, for they'll be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, because your reward is in heaven. In other words when we live the way he told us to live, righteously, humbly, selflessly, sacrificially, with love for him and for others, we're not only blessed over and over and over again, but there are substantial rewards that he gives us in response. And the added benefit to all of it is that we will be free of conflict, frustration, and sin. Now, there's no disciple that knew this dichotomy better than Peter. I mean, who in all the Bible really can speak better to this than him? He's in the latter half of his life. He's moved on to maturity personally, spiritually, and in his ministry. And now he's writing to scattered believers, and he's writing to us, and he's urging us to do the same. He wants us The Bible wants us, the Spirit of God wants us to become someone different. It wants us to become someone who is completely mature. Personally, spiritually mature. Not just more mature, completely mature. He wants us to be less focused on self, less materialistic, more outwardly committed, more at peace, an exemplary husband or wife, an exemplary powerful parent, a more faithful friend, a more effective servant of God. So how do we do that? Okay, great. That's our goal. That's what we want to do. But how do we do it? Well, Peter tells us. Look back at verse 13, because there are five primary commands given here. They're both a strong exhortation to us and a fervent encouragement. We're going to take one or two minutes on each and then we'll pray. Start in verse 13. Jot these down maybe and just have them as a goal for your week. First of all, prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind for action. The literal Greek word is gird up. Gird up is a reference to the practice that started in the Asian culture in which people would tuck in any clothing that was hanging out or or flowing around them that might inhibit what they were doing so they would take it And they would kind of clench it up and tuck it into their belt so that it would not impede their work. Jesus tells uh, us that at Passover, the first Passover when they were leaving Egypt, that that God told the Israelites, gird up yourselves, get yourselves ready. Don't don't be tripping over yourselves because when the Passover comes and and the angel flies over and strikes the firstborn dead of all the house of Egypt, you're going to need to get ready because you're about to leave. So don't be sitting around lounging with your robe all flowing where when it says time to go, you trip and fall. Get yourself ready. Gird yourself up. 
Now, Peter knew the term because he was a fisherman. And a fisherman can't be reaching down to pull up the nets with his robe coming down like this and getting all tangled and getting caught in the boat or getting caught in the net because that could be very dangerous. So a fisherman had to gird themselves up and tuck everything in and get themselves ready. It's like rolling up your sleeves. Okay, I've got work to do. I've got to get my sleeves rolled up so I can do this work effectively. So I don't I don't get myself to be a mess. I'm going to keep my sleeves like this because I'm hot for one thing and because I want to illustrate the point. Gird up. Get ready. There's work to be done. Now, he says this in terms of our minds. Gird your minds up. In other words, remove anything that impedes your mind from being holy. Wow, is that a tough one. Paul says in Philippians 4, we should only fill our minds. Think about the impact of this this week. We should only fill our minds with what is true. We should only fill our minds with what's honorable and what's right and what's righteous and what is pure and what is lovely and what has a good reputation. How much have we put in our minds this week that does not fit in those categories? The Bible says if you fill your mind with things that don't fit in that list, then everything's flying loose. And you're going to get caught up in what is harmful and you will be unprepared to live and serve as God wants us to live and serve. So essentially, tuck your mind in. Get your mind ready. Get it, get it, get it girded. Roll up the sleeves of our minds. That's what he's telling us. Rhodes, roll up the sleeves of your mind. Only think about what's pure and holy and right and righteous and true. Forget all the other stuff because it's making your mind flap. Get it? Second, keep sober in spirit. The word means what we think it means. It means to be calm and careful and clear-headed. Now, Peter can speak to this because earlier in his life, he lacked those qualities. When he was immature, he, he was stubborn and quick to respond and impulsive and wrong a lot of times, but now he writes with credibility. And he says, this is a very important action for every believer to have. Every believer should be marked by spiritual and personal self-restraint. And he uses the word sober, because if we're not sober, what are we? Come on, tell me. We live in Wisconsin where we know what that means, right? If we're not sober, we're drunk. And you know what the enemy wants to intoxicate us with the most? Self. He wants us to be drunk with self. Self is proud. Self wants to be satisfied apart from the Lord. Self works apart from the word of God. And self justifies its actions. And just like with alcohol, the buzz of self seems great at the time. But once the effect of self wears off, we forget how much damage it did in the first place. And we go right back and take a drink. Self intoxicates. And Peter says, get away from it. Be sober in spirit. Keep your spirit, keep your heart, keep your mind clear and pure so you don't fall under the influence of sin because when you're under the influence of sin, you make lousy decisions and you live for yourself. Third, 
trust the Lord with complete confidence. Now, why is this in the list? It's in the list because self hates trusting the Lord. It is so contrary to humanity and so contrary for, for us to admit our inadequacy and ask the Lord for help. But to become someone different, who the Lord wants us to be, because he sacrificed himself to redeem us and make us that, now it is fundamentally essential to live outside of ourselves when it comes to faith. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That doesn't mean when you want to. That doesn't mean when it's comfortable. That doesn't even mean when it makes sense. It means all the time, constantly, without fail, without exception, without wavering, without fighting, without arguing, without doubting. Because the Bible says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That means whatever's going on in your life right now, whatever's going on in my life, whatever's going on in the church, God has a perfect plan and he will provide and enable and equip and strengthen us to see it accomplished when we trust in him. But if we become self-sufficient and say, well, we'll figure it out, God says, I am taking my hand off of that. You do your own thing. You struggle and fail, and then you'll come back to me. And I will say to you again, I have a perfect plan for you, and I will accomplish it if you will trust me. You see, Israel, all throughout the Old Testament, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, Yes, Lord, we want it. No, we don't. Yes, we do. No, we don't. Yes, we do. No, we don't. It's, it's like spiritual ping pong. And I don't know about you, but when I watch a ping pong match, my neck hurts. Trust in the Lord with complete confidence. Fourth, don't be conformed to your former lusts. And here's the, the, the phrase that just slayed me at the end of verse 12, which were yours in your ignorance. We'll get to that in a minute because that's not fun. He says, you want to show how you're an obedient child of God? Don't be conformed to your former lust. Now, the word conform there means to act like someone else. In this case, it's acting like who we used to be. That's why he uses the word your former lust, not your current lust, because Christ has gained victory over them. He's defeated the power of our former lusts. We're supposed to walk in the spirit and put off those lusts. And interestingly, the word lust here does not mean something sexual. Usually we associate lust with things like pornography or whatever. This is not about sexual sin. He says it's much more broad than that. The word lust here, when he says put off your former lusts, he is talking about the desire for what is forbidden. Now that's a very long list, isn't it? It includes anything we want that is outside the will of God that would bring dishonor to the Lord. A possession, a relationship, a goal, our, our control, our desire, our way, even attention. Anything that we wouldn't think of doing if Jesus Christ was standing right there. And yet, as believers, we live in his presence every day because his spirit indwells us. So if we think we're going to get away with it because Jesus isn't right there, we're sadly mistaken. He indwells us. He watches us. He knows our minds. And he says, you need to put off anything that is not pleasing to me. Now, we had a former lifetime of doing those things. 
even if you were saved like me when I was nine, I don't really have much of a past, so to speak. I was not a juvenile delinquent when I was seven. And yet, I have a lifetime of former lusts. I have a lifetime, and you do too, of things that are desires for what is forbidden. And we know what it's like to gratify and accommodate those desires. But now we're saved and delivered and forgiven and redeemed and transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, now you are a completely different person. In your thoughts, in your actions, in your speech, in your conversation, in your priorities, you are different. Listen, if your life is not different from what it used to be, you need to evaluate where you are with the Lord. There should be a distinct difference. You are a completely different person. You should be so divergent from your past, and I should be so divergent from my past, which is why Paul says to Timothy, put off the youthful lust, Timothy. Quit doing the sins that you did when you were younger. You're different now. You should be divergent. This is not about you anymore. Be a different person because that's who you are in Christ. And if you're not that, sin is still in control and you're feeding it by allowing it to be in control. Paul says, and here's the tough part. Everybody, let's wrestle with this word, the end of verse 14. Paul says, this is a sign of... Let's put it nicely, lack of wisdom. But the word he really uses is ignorance. This is a sign of ignorance. This is a sign of living how we used to live when we did not know better because we were unredeemed. Now he says you're redeemed and God expects you to not conform to who you used to be. So on that bright note, how do we live instead? Let's look at the last thought. We'll pray. Peter sums it all up with the last thought in verses 15 and 16. He says, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Notice the demonstrative there. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, quoting the Lord here, you will be holy for I am holy. Now there's no way to miss the Spirit's emphasis because four times he uses what word? Tell me. Holy. It's not like he just says, hey, do your best to be holy so you won't be conformed to four lusts. He said, you need to be holy in all your behavior so that you'll be holy because the Lord said, be holy as I'm holy. If he repeats something four times in two verses, we probably ought to pay attention to it. He says, you've been declared holy, justified through faith in Jesus Christ. You've been given the Holy Spirit to indwell, fill, and lead you. Now, we still have a command, even though we've been declared holy and been given a Holy Spirit, he says you still have a responsibility to be holy. In other words, it's not just, oh, I trusted Christ and I'm going to heaven and then kind of live how I want now. There is a tremendous responsibility that's been given that we're expected to fulfill. And it's no coincidence that the end of a section about living outside ourselves that holiness is mentioned because holiness is one of two spiritual attributes, the other one is faith, that is that prevents us from drawing any attention to ourselves. If you are living a holy life, and I am living a holy life, it is not because we finally achieved 
a state of real self-discipline. It is because Jesus Christ has sanctified us and Jesus Christ has purchased us and the Holy Spirit has indwelled us and we are now living for him. Holiness is all about the Lord. That's why he says, be holy as I'm holy. I'm the example, I'm the source, I'm the one that empowers you. But listen, you and I have the ability to live through him that way. If it wasn't possible, he wouldn't say to us, be holy. If you and I cannot be holy, God is a hypocrite to save us. Which means you and I can be holy. We have the ability to live outside ourselves, even if our old nature doesn't want us to, and the culture tempts us not to, and the devil tries to give us incentive not to, which should convince us that it's absolutely right to live that way, right? The prophets were told, this is not for you. There are going to be people that gather in a couple thousand years in a building in downtown Racine, Wisconsin, that, that need to hear this. So don't serve yourself. This is not for you. This is for them. Now the call is on us. And I can't think of anything that we need to do more. Everything is dependent on this. Our maturation, our prayer, our worship, our outreach, our relationships, our marriages, our parenting, on and on. Daily, we see the evidence of not doing this, and we're called to practice it and experience it and to be close to the Lord and separate from our past life. And when we don't do it, and I felt this this week, and I watched this this week, when we don't do it, there is a great cause. Are you willing, am I willing, to continue in what God has provided in changing us? Are we willing to step away from our old life and live a holy life that is not about us? Or are we going to keep resisting it and wondering why we're not progressing? Gird up your mind. Be sober in spirit. Fix your hope on Christ. Don't be conformed to your former lusts. Instead, be holy. It's so simple but we fight it so much. Now it's time to permanently yield to it. Let's close our eyes. I want to give you just a second because the Lord has really convicted me this week. I want to give you a second to just allow the Holy Spirit to continue to speak to your heart and your mind. I don't know how this has impacted you. I don't know if it has, if it has impacted you. But the Lord clearly is calling us to something different. To move out of the mundane, to move out of average, to move out of lukewarm. And to be holy. 
Not holy as the world defines it. Not holy as church defines it. Holy as it's defined in him. Where life is not about us. Where ministry is not about us. Where our marriage is not about us. It's about him. That will radically change who we are. So as the Spirit speaks to you this morning, and I pray He is, I want to encourage you and exhort you to bring what is not pleasing to Him to Him and ask Him to forgive us. Just like He was with Peter, the Lord is waiting to do a mighty work in our midst. But self will always hold that back. Peter was not used until he denied himself. And then God did amazing things. Lord, we ask you to do that in our lives. We ask you to do that in this church and in our ministry. You know what will hold us back. And we need you to confront us on it. And we need you to challenge us to not live for self. Lord, this is a struggle that every one of us has. And I pray you would do a cleansing work in our midst. Lord, I pray you do a cleansing work in my own life where self is so much in evidence and that you would refine us and shape us so that we would be holy and pleasing to you. Lord, we thank you that you discipline gently. That you're not harsh, that you're not impatient, that you're not punitive. You could be, but you're not because you're a gracious and merciful God. And we ask you with all grace and mercy this morning to do the work of refining and discipline in our lives so that you can use us in powerful ways. Lord, we will give you the praise and the glory when that happens just as we give you the praise and the glory now for what you have done in our lives and changing us forever. Lord, we pray you'd help us to move on to maturity and to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. We thank you for doing this work. We pray against the work of the enemy who will try to discourage us the moment we walk out the door. We pray you would continue to shape us and work on us, and work with us, and through us in the days ahead. We thank you and praise you for this, and we love you. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.